Somebody say amen. There you go. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 in our ongoing series called Frontiers. Acts chapter 2. Got at least one more Sunday in this passage, so if you're getting sick of it, good. Okay. Ha 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 ha. Come on. We're here together. Let's do it. Let's have some fun. Our home base comes from Luke's description. Our home base for this series called Frontiers comes from Luke's description of the early church in Acts chapter 2. It says this, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. As I've been spending a lot of time with this passage over the last few weeks, what I keep thinking about is an engine. How all of the elements of this passage, the Lord's Supper, the fellowship, prayer, signs and wonders, the apostles' teaching, how they all came together to form an engine that sparked on Pentecost, an engine that drove not only the transformation of individual people's lives, but drove the transformation of the world. In Acts chapter 2, the early church is located in the city of Jerusalem, but look at what happens by, the, by one, year 100. Show me that first map there, Malachi. So all of those red dots are cities in the Roman Empire as of uh, AD 100. Uh, by, by the year 100, 64% of port cities in the Roman Empire had a church. Two out of three port cities in the Roman Empire had a church. Not a church building. We didn't start building church buildings until about, three, until about 300. Uh, but uh, they had networks of house churches in those cities. Uh, in, in the year 100, about uh, 24% of inland cities had churches. By 180, go to the next uh, map for me there, Kai. By 180, uh, those, in, those figures had increased to 86%, meaning about 9 out of 10 port cities, and about 65%, or about 2 out of 3 inland cities. The gospel of Jesus will be unhindered as it moves to create a new kingdom culture in ordinary places. As the people of Jesus expanded their presence through the Roman Empire, they became known for five radical practices or radical elements. Uh, the first one was that the early church was multiracial and multiethnic, uh, transcended racial and ethnic and cultural lines. Uh, the second is that the early church was highly committed to caring for the poor and marginalized. In fact, uh, the vast majority of the early church was poor. Only a handful of people had wealth. The rest of them were ordinary marginalized citizens. Uh, they practiced non-retaliatory and actually honestly often non-violence. They were committed to, to forgiveness. The early church was strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. The early church was also revolutionary regarding the ethics of sex. So here's a question. Where did these practices come from? 
How does the early church land on everywhere they go, they are doing these five things, whether it's in Turkey or Italy or Greece or beyond, why is it that they do these five things? Well, it's because they're committed to the authority of Scripture, which Acts chapter 2 calls the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is simply the content of everything that the apostles, those 12 that Jesus called to himself, those, everything that they learned about and from Jesus These 12 men spent three and a half years every day, every hour with Jesus, hearing his words, watching him live his life, watching him do the kinds of things that he did. After he died and rose again, he led those apostles in a 40-day Bible study on the kingdom of God. He taught them that the kingdom of God is, as Dallas Willard says, the place where what God wants done is done. Here's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done. It's the effective range of his will. It's his rule. And so as Jesus taught the apostles about the kingdom, they came to an undeniable trait of the kingdom, which is that the kingdom is a place of justice. The kingdom is a place of justice. As Jesus led a Bible study on uh, those, those parts of the Bible that you and I called the Old Testament, as they looked at the law and the prophets and the writings, they would have inevitably seen the theme of justice running like a bright red cord from the beginning of the Bible to its end. The Hebrew word justice, see, Asher knows what I'm talking about. The Hebrew word justice, mishpat, appears more than 200 times in the Old Testament. And the core definition of this word, the core definition of the word justice in the Bible, simply means to treat people equitably and to give them their rights. To treat people equitably and to give them their rights. I just want to show you a few examples of this. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, the Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. Look at the prophets, like Zechariah chapter 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. And by the way, Tim Keller uh, notes that the immigrant, the poor, the fatherless, and the widow, this quartet um, is the main object of justice in the Old Testament. It goes beyond that, but those four are spoken of on repeat. Uh, Look here at Amos chapter 5. This is actually a verse that Martin Luther King used a lot. Uh, But let judgment or justice run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Mishpat appears in the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 16.11. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. Chapter 21, verse 3, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And then then here in the Psalms, Psalm 146, starting in verse 7, God goes so far as to introduce himself as a God of justice. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and the widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. When you introduce yourself to someone, you're telling them everything they really need to know about who you are. 
My name is Kyle. I'm a pastor of a church called Regeneration and Otterbein United Methodist Church. I live in Warren, Ohio with my wife Stephanie and my son Jack. I like to cook. I like to drink coffee. I like not doing yard work. When the Lord introduces himself in Psalm 146, he introduces himself as a God of justice. He introduces himself as a God who identifies with the oppressed. And as we turn the pages into the New Testament, we meet Jesus, who is justice incarnate. Justice isn't something that Jesus does, it's who Jesus is. Jesus is justice. Jesus begins his public ministry in Luke chapter 4 by opening the scroll of Isaiah and going to what you and I call the 61st chapter and saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord favor has come. And when he reads this passage, he says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. And people lose their minds. Jesus' ministry is marked by a concern for the last and the least. And Isaiah 61 is why. Jesus' ministry is for the poor, for the captive, for the blind, for the oppressed, such that one theologian says, there can be no Christian theology that is not identified unreservedly with those who are humiliated and abused. There can be no Christian theology that is not identified unreservedly with those who are humiliated and abused. This is because even as Jesus launches a ministry that's for the last and the least, it's because Jesus also identifies with the oppressed. Jesus identifies with those who are humiliated and abused. Uh, in Matthew 25, if you want to go there with me, you can. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a little parable about the final judgment. This, start, this is in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered into his presence and he will separate people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom for you, God, the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Verse 37, then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, uh, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing. When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And verse 40, Jesus says, the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you were doing it to me. Jesus identifies with the poor and oppressed and it ultimately kills him. Jesus so identifies with the captive, with the poor, with those targeted by oppression and injustice, that Jesus himself is oppressed. He is taken captive. He is unjustly tried and killed. And on Good Friday, all of the injustice, evil and wickedness and, and sin of the world 
rushed on to the body of Jesus, and it killed him. Three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead, claiming victory over that which sought to end his life. As Jesus, glorified, alive, steps out from the tomb, the kingdom of God, which Isaiah says is a place of righteousness and justice, the kingdom comes with him. And so these earliest followers of Jesus, scattered across the Roman Empire as they were, devoted to fellowship, devoted to the apostles' teaching, they became a revolutionary force for justice. Justice shaped and defined by the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the story of Scripture. These early Christians lived quiet and self-controlled lives in a culture where debauchery and sexual liberation was the name of the game. These early Christians went into garbage heaps and plucked out unwanted babies, and poor as they were, adopted them into their own family. These early Christians made sure that the poor among them had every need met, such that Luke says there was no need among them. These early Christians were committed to building the multi-ethnic family of Jesus. Because in Christ, Paul says, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, or male or female. These early Christians, faced with death and persecution, responded with forgiveness and nonviolence. And they did face death. Early Christians were fed to lions while roaring crowds watched on. Early Christians were staked up and covered in tar and lit on fire to light the emperor's dinner parties. And while the cultural and political elites of the Roman Empire did everything in their power to extinguish this strange religious Jewish sect, rank-and-file Romans... Ordinary citizens of the empire saw this multi-ethnic, forgiving, generous, risk-taking spiritual family that saved babies and, by the way, nursed their neighbors through, through plagues and pandemics. They saw them, and while they didn't necessarily like their Christian neighbors, while they didn't necessarily understand their Christian neighbors, can I tell you the truth? They didn't want them to go anywhere. They didn't like them. They didn't understand them, but they didn't want them to go away, such that Luke tells us the early church enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. And when you look at these five radical elements, Malachi, go back to that list for me, bud. When you look at these five radical elements, something might grab your attention, and it's that they bridge the cultural divide very present in our moment. They bridge the cultural divide very present in our moment. Tim Keller, by the way, I'm kind of stealing from this. If you don't know, Tim Keller is my spirit animal. Um, I want to grow up to be him one day. Um, Tim Keller points out that what's really interesting about this list is that the first two, a concern for racial justice and for the poor and marginalized, those two things are generally associated with a liberal social agenda. Generally. The last two are generally associated with a more conservative social agenda such that in mainline churches, you will hear a lot of talk about uh, people of color, you will hear a lot of talk about the poor and the marginalized, but you will not hear a lot of conversation about abortion. But flip over to more conservative evangelical churches and you'll hear a lot of talk about sexuality and a lot of talk about abortion, but not a lot of talk about racial justice, and not a lot of talk about caring for the poor and marginalized, and let's be honest, nobody's really talking about the middle one. And what's the one thing we need in our culture right now? The middle one. 
to jettison any of these five elements would distance, would, to jettison any of these five elements would be to distance ourselves from our heritage and our tradition. To jettison any of these five elements would make us the handmaid of partisanship and political party. To jettison any of these five elements would rob us of the opportunity for a genuine missionary encounter in our culture. Because while this group of people are doing these things and this group of people are doing those things and fighting about which one should be more important, we're the people doing all five. Thank you very much. By committing to all five, there was a sense of awe and wonder in the early church. By committing to all five, did you hear that? They had the goodwill of all the people. A few years ago, I encountered a question that's pretty common to hear nowadays at Christian conferences and church leadership things. And the question was something like, if your church disappeared tomorrow, would anyone in your community notice? If your church disappeared tomorrow, would anyone in your community notice? I hear that question, I think, well, I would notice. You hear that question, you think, I would notice. But that's not the question. It's not would you notice, it's would they notice, would your community notice? Would Champion Township, would Trumbull County, would Mahoning Valley, would they notice if our church disappeared tomorrow? And I think if we were being really terribly honest, we would say that most people really wouldn't notice. I mean, our friends at Summit Academy would be sad to not have us in partnership with them. Our friends at the ASAP Coalition for Drug Abuse and Addiction Recovery, they might, they might miss us. And I know that many of you are engaged in justice work and mercy work in a variety of ways. Uh, caring for the unborn, caring for foster children, a dozen other things that I don't know about, tutoring kids, all of these things. And that, hear me, I love that and I'm excited about that. And I know that if you disappear tomorrow, those nonprofits, those ministries, they would miss you. If this thing that we call regeneration disappeared tomorrow, we have to be honest and say that not many people would notice. At least not like people would notice in the early church if they suddenly disappeared. Because who would be taking care of the babies that were left on doorsteps? Did you know this in Roman culture? A woman had a baby, she left it out on the doorstep, and if the husband walked by, they weren't keeping it. And so somebody came and threw it in the garbage and let it die. They would have noticed because nobody was taking care of the poor. They would have noticed because what happened to that multi-ethnic group of people that they don't look like each other, they don't talk like each other, they're from very different places, but boy, are they a family. They would have been missed, and we have to be honest and say they wouldn't miss us like they miss them. We've been naming frontiers. Where are we going as a church? Where are the places that God is calling us to pioneer? He's calling us to be a church that transforms doesn't just make you smarter, but a place where you are made whole after the image of Jesus. He's calling us to be a church that gathers and scatters, a church that does temple and home, a temple that lives life as a fam a church that lives life as a family. But today I want us to look at that God's calling us to be a church that does justice and loves mercy. A church that follows in the steps of King Jesus, who brings his kingdom of justice and righteousness to earth. Now, who answers the prayer on earth as it is in heaven, in us and through us, as we make a culture of heaven in ordinary places. We're going to be a church that obeys the clear call of Scripture. So clear we have it on our wall. No, what does the Lord require of you? And he has told you what is good. 
to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And in our cultural moment, in this moment right here, the justice issue at the forefront of our national conversation is that of racial justice and racial healing. And because we live in a remarkably divided time, and just when I thought that we couldn't be more divided, Steph looks at me on Friday night and says, honey, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Who is writing the script for 2020? It is crazy. It is unthinkable that we could get pushed further to the brink. So Kyle says, I'm going to take the next five to eight minutes to talk about how biblical justice speaks to the issue of racism, and I can feel your hackles rising. So can I just invite you to take a, a breath and hear me out? And if you disagree with me, we will make stones available on your way to your car. In Acts chapter 2, the church is mostly Jewish and centered in Jerusalem, but as the tension between the two temples, the new temple indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit and the old temple of the old covenant and those who guard it, as those temples come into conflict, in Acts chapter 8, a massive wave of persecution strikes the early church, such that believers were scattered to Antioch, to Pisidia, to all of these places around that region. And as these Jesus people leave the city and take up residence in new places and start Jesus communities, the most unthinkable possible thing happens. The church and the gospel begin to cross racial barriers left and right. It makes, it, the gospel crosses racial divide in Acts chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 so fast, it would like spin a KKK, KKK guy's like hood thing right off his head. Because in Acts chapter 8, it's Samaritans, and then an Ethiopian, and then in Acts chapter 10, it's a Gentile. And by the time the church, by the time the book of Acts ends, Paul is preaching the gospel to Roman citizens right under the nose of the emperor, and leading and writing to and dealing with conflict in multi-ethnic, multiracial churches all over the empire. The book of Acts has a consistent theme, and the theme is that the gospel will not be stopped by racism or prejudice. Even the racism and prejudice that we don't want to admit is there, or the, the, the racism and prejudice that we're afraid to repent of, it will not be stopped, despite our best efforts otherwise. And instead, the gospel of Jesus will be unhindered until every tribe and tongue and nation becomes part of the family of Jesus. This is why when Peter is sitting down with a bunch of Gentiles, and a group of Jewish people enter the room, and Peter gets up from that lunch table to go sit at the lunch table over here, Paul grabs him by the scruff of his neck and smacks him up and down, because it's not a preference thing, it's not I like them better, it's racism. The reason Paul spends so much time writing about Jew and Gentile in his letters, it, it, it's not primarily uh, because he's, well, it is primarily because he's trying to correct a theological thing and help Jewish people see Jesus at the end of their faith, but at the same time, he's trying to correct centuries of racism that have existed between Jews and Gentiles, because by the time of Paul, works of the law not only refers to uh, fastidious adherence to the law of Moses, it also refers to doing everything possible to make sure I am not like those Gentiles. This is why when John gets a glimpse of heaven in Revelation chapter 7, he says, after this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, 
from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And if that's the end of the story, and Jesus tells us we're supposed to be experiencing the end now, then we have work to do. And hear me out, hear me out on this. To talk about injustice and oppression does not make you a Marxist. To talk about injustice and oppression does not make you a Marxist. It doesn't make you part of a political party or agenda. To talk about injustice and oppression makes you part of the people of Jesus. It makes you a student of the Bible. And whether you are all in on Black Lives Matter, the organization, or the sentiment, or you are skeptical about systemic racism and white privilege, here's what I do know. All of us could do with being more biblical and more like Jesus in this area, as well as many others. But we could all, with do, be, we could all bear with being more like Jesus and more biblical in this one area. And so starting today... Starting today, we're going to be a church that does justice. We're going to be people that love mercy. We're going to be people who walk humbly with God. We will be a church that walks humbly. We will be a church that listens, that asks, that seeks to understand, that refuses to post condescending, snarky, oversimplifying memes when the world is desperate for complexity, desperate for nuance, and most of all, truth. And if it can fit on a t-shirt or a meme, it's probably not truth. We will be a church that loves mercy. We will be a church that when it hears people of color saying something is wrong, we will choose to weep with those who weep before we render judgment, before we offer a defense, before we seek an explanation. We will be a church that does justice. We will be a church that seeks to bring the spiritual resources of the kingdom of God to the questions of racial justice and defending the lives of the unborn and caring for victims of sex trafficking and caring about poverty across the street and across the globe. Listen, when we start having conversations about this, when we start talking about one issue, somebody always wants to bring the other five up. And I say this with all love, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I feel like that's what I keep hearing the Lord say. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can do more than one thing. We can resist the tyranny of the oar and embrace the genius of the and. We can do both. We can do multiple. We will be a church that does justice. We will be a church that loves mercy. We will be a church that walks humbly with God. And and let me just say this. Let me be really clear. If I had the spiritual authority, I would get all of you off Facebook. It is not making it better. It is not making it better. I beg you. Steph said to me um, this spring, when we faced, I don't know, one of like seven, who was it? After George Floyd... Steph said to me, COVID's not going to destroy our church. This is. Because believe me, when you're talking about them, you're actually talking about us. 
compassion, kindness. When Jack gets tantrumy, I hold them and I start saying, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. I'm saying it for me, not him. Love, joy, <laughs> peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Did I miss one? Oh, he says, troll. Before you click share, before you post, ask. Love, joy, peace, patience. If not, you're destroying our church because the them is somebody in the room. Speak prophetically, speak up, say it. Because here's the thing, we are going to be a church that does justice and loves mercy and walks humbly with God, not because it's in vogue, but because it is a non-negotiable part of following Jesus. And hear me, we will be rooted in scripture. We will walk by the spirit. We will speak the truth in love. We will contend for the faith that was handed down once for all. We will strive for unity even in our diversity. We will pray and we will act. We will do what Jesus taught us to do. We will bring a culture of heaven, a heaven that will be home to every tribe and tongue and nation, to a broken and divided and sinful earth. So, so how do we do that? As you know, when we've been doing this Frontier series, we've been talking about what do we do this week, what do we do over the next year, and what do we do over the next five years. And so here's what that looks like. So this week, I want to encourage you to adopt the posture of a learner. Adopt the posture of a learner. Uh, two books to recommend to you. Um, Generous Justice by Tim Keller. Excellent. Another good book, Be the Bridge, Pursuing God's Heart for Racial Reconciliation by Latasha Morrison. Also a great podcast, if you're a podcaster. Um, just so you know, we're going to try something in January called J-Term. You've heard, you've heard of that when you were in college, you could go do, go do a class. So in January, we're going to offer like quick four-week classes on a variety of things, and one of those classes will be on Be the Bridge. So we'll do a J-Term class on Be the Bridge. Really helpful. Latasha Morrison is... I, it frustrates me sometimes I feel like I have to say this, but she's an evangelical Christian committed to the authority of Scripture, believe that Jesus is Lord, but it's really great. So that's this week. What about over the next year? Uh, this spring, we're going to launch what's called a Justice and, the, uh, Justice and Mercy cohort, and, and so what is that? I'm going to lead a group that will define a few things. We are going to craft our church's strategy for Justice and Mercy Ministries. We will reflect on Scripture. We will hear from experts. We will identify causes and partnerships with which we will engage locally, regionally, nationally, globally. Um, you know, Jesus says that we're to go to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So at that justice cohort, we'll say, what is our definition of justice? What is our definition of mercy? How do we feel about giving money to things? When do we know when we need to give money versus when we need to show up? Uh, how do we know what our Jerusalem is? How do we know what our Judea and Samaria is? How do we know what our ends of the earth are? Um, and, and, and let me be explicit about what I'm doing implicitly. It is very easy to have an opinion. It's very easy to have an opinion. It is another thing to be a part of a process that's constructive. Um, and so we'll launch that this spring. 
and then here's where we're going in five years, and this is big, so we need to pray about it. But in five years, we want to have a multi-ethnic staff that is leading us in preparations for a multi-ethnic church plant in Warren or Youngstown, or why not have both? Let that sink in. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of money. It's really, really hard to plant a church. Don't know if you know that. I do. I had more hair before we started this. But we really feel like not, and hear me about this, not because it's in vogue, not because it's at the forefront of national conversation, although when something is going on in culture, it's good for the church to think biblically about it, but because we are too compelled by what we see in Revelation 7 to wait. We are too compelled by what we see the early church doing to wait. We want to be part of something. We want to, do, we want to be a church that does justice, that loves mercy, and walks humbly with our God. Let me pray, and then Steph will lead us in response time. God, uh, for what I said today that was not of you, I don't pray this often, but I have felt led to pray it today. For what I have said that's not of you, first of all, show me that so I can repent, right? And, and second of all, uh, help me to uh, help that to kind of be erased. But if there's something here for us from you, we want to receive it and walk after it. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I just want to remind you that we have response time because we don't just want to hear God's word and, and walk away unchanged, but we want to hear his word. We want to do what he says. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we want to be transformed. And um, this is a heavy topic. It's been heavy in our home this week. We've been talking a lot about it, praying a lot about it. We've had some hard conversations on both sides of, of these issues. Um, so we don't take this lightly. We don't... Um, it's something we've really prayed about a lot. And so I want to encourage you in this season. I think one of the things the Lord keeps highlighting for me is how much fear people are experiencing right now. There's a lot of fear in our world about what is going to happen. Um, and I just keep coming back to that verse that says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so I just want to encourage you. Um, we're going to take our, a couple moments, just reflect um, I don't even really want to say a lot because I really want you to hear what God has to say to you this morning. Um, and so I want to invite you um, to just be thinking about what are the barriers that stand in the way for you pursuing justice? What are the things that trip you up? What are the, what are the messages that you're hearing that maybe you're realizing aren't in tune with God's word? And, and what is he asking of you in this season? What is he asking you to repent of? And secondly of all, I just want to encourage you, if you are experiencing that spirit of fear, um, to even repent of that and to trust the Lord and to ask him to replace that spirit of fear with a spirit of love um, so that you can um, kind of do some things we've talked about and engage in some of the conversations that we've invited you to engage in. So let's take a couple moments. The band is, is going to play, and then Kyle will come back and lead us in communion. So.